Gospel according to Matthew, the 16th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. From that time on, after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told the disciples, if anyone's become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. What will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit the life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. In addition to reading this morning from Romans and Matthew, which we have been doing all summer long, it's been kind of fun, um, in the last couple of weeks, we've also heard from Isaiah, who is one of four Old Testament prophets known as the major prophets, the big deal prophets. This week, in addition to reading from Matthew and Romans, we heard from another of these uh, major prophets, that being the prophet Jeremiah, who, using the four words that prophets are pretty much defined for the fact that they said them, those being the words, Thus says the Lord, boldly spoke the word of the Lord to people and especially to power in and around Jerusalem in the years immediately before 587 B.C. and the capture and destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. The Babylonians who, after destroying and ransacking and looting the city, took any of the best and brightest of the city who were still alive back to Babylon with them, where they lived in captivity. It was at that time the single most traumatic event in Jewish history. For decades leading up to that, Jeremiah had told them it was coming. And the reason, he said, and by way of fair warning, let me say to you that when the prophets, especially the major ones, got their A game going, their words have a way of sounding like they're speaking them today, every much as they were speaking them then. The reason Jeremiah told of the coming capture and destruction of Jerusalem, whose Jewish citizenry liked to recall that they had been birthed as a nation, as God's chosen people, who were surely chosen for great things as this one nation under God. But according to Jeremiah, though they continued to give lip service to God, who indeed had chosen them for great things, their ultimate trust, judging by the way they lived their lives, was in the greatness of earthly powers and earthly ways and earthly things and earthly kingdoms in which by now the few who had so much of the world's abundance 
like to believe their hand-picked and personally appointed prophets who told them at their prayer breakfasts that their wealthy abundance was obvious evidence of how obviously pleased God obviously was with them. Jeremiah, on the other hand, told them, and being Jeremiah, he told them loud and louder, that the reason they had so much of the things of this world rather was because their society and their societal systems and their societal values, steeped in sin, were unjustly built on the backs of and ignoring the needs of the many, many countless around them who had almost nothing at all. Jeremiah, and I'm pretty sure by now you'll understand this, didn't get invited to many prayer breakfasts or parties on the south lawn of the palace. He did, however, crash a few. Like many of the prophets, major and minor, and to this day, Jeremiah learned the hard way that those who stand up to speak truth to power, political power and economic power and complicit religious power, are inevitably powerfully opposed. And so there are numerous examples in scripture of the links that the power went to to try to shut Jeremiah up like dumping him in a, in a muddy but otherwise waterless cistern and leaving him there for days to rot and locking him up in prison so nobody could hear him, like trying to kill him, and of course mocking him and lying about him and attacking him and trying to discredit him on all social media platforms that were available to them at the time. Being a true prophet, a true prophet, major or minor, or to this day, is actually a job few people ever sought or applied for. One can only be a true prophet of the true God by speaking the truth, including speaking it precisely to power, and that in this sin-steeped world over and over and over again does end up going the way it always, almost always seems to go. And Jeremiah discovered that. Today's reading from Jeremiah, therefore, is from a section of Jeremiah known as the laments of Jeremiah, for in this section, he's not prophesying quite so much, uh, in this section he laments, he cries out to God with tears and angrily, anger, complaining tearfully, angrily, not only about the way he's been received, but also, in Jeremiah's case, by his pretty peeved and growing sense that God didn't seem to be doing much of anything about it or even seem to care about that. This, by the way, is the time to realize that you don't get to be a prophet of the Lord by shying away from speak, speaking truth to power, whether you're speaking to the lords of this world or, here in Jeremiah's case, whether you're speaking to the Lord God Almighty. I never came looking for this job, Jeremiah said to God in our reading for the day. It came looking for me. You came looking for me. You called me, and I answered you. I couldn't, I couldn't not answer you, and you spoke to me, he said, and I delighted in your word. Indeed, he said in that reading, it all sounds strange, but it's powerful. He said, I ate your word, which is idiomatic for I didn't just give it lip service. I took it in. I consumed it. And it consumed me, and it became me. It became all of me. 
But the only ones listening to me, he said, are the ones listening for nothing but opportunities to mock, to malign, to threaten, to persecute it. And I'm tired of it, he said to God. In fact, you read this closely, and this is what he's saying. I'm getting tired of you, he said to God, for it seems clear to me that you're not holding up your end of the darn deal. You have failed me, for I trusted in you, but the words that I delighted in now seem like they were lies to me. And that you yourself, you are like a deceitful brook whose promises are like waters that look refreshing from afar, but they fail. They sour and dry up like dusty mirages when you need them. I repeat, you don't get to be a prophet of the Lord by shying away from speaking truthfully to power, whether you're speaking to the lords of the world or, in Jeremiah's case, in this text, speaking to the Lord God Almighty. Of course, you don't get to be the Lord God Almighty without being truth. And so at this point in Jeremiah's tirade, God decides to speak some truth of God's own. And how does God speak? In the same way God so often in the Bible does speak. God here speaks through a prophet. In this case, one who is right there and handy. The result of which is that in the second half of our reading, we have this really quite remarkable scene in which the prophet Jeremiah says those four words that prophets almost always say, thus says the Lord. And then the prophet Jeremiah speaks the word of the Lord to himself. As, as in our reading today, he calls himself to repent, to turn from that dark place he had depressed himself into, and instead, again, to trust the Lord, including trusting the Lord's promise that though, because sin is sin, and the world is sin-steeped, and so the powerfully sinful will resist truth sinfully powerfully, that does not change the fact that the righteousness and justice of the vision I have given you, Jeremiah, to see and to call the people toward will one day be it will be there to be seen, even though for now, sin being sin, there will be suffering, including suffering for you, Jeremiah, between now and then. But remember, Jeremiah the prophet prophesied to Jeremiah that God was saying to him, I am with you always. I am with you always to save you and to strengthen you for what must be faced and to deliver you. And in the end, at last, in my time and in my way, you and my truth that you speak will prevail, even though things like the suffering you are suffering will be required until it prevails finally, fully. Here's truth. Sometimes, no doubt, difficulties come our way because we've been sinful. That is what Jeremiah spent his life warning Jerusalem about. But in doing so, he learned personally, and we are reminded that sometimes, too, sin being sin, difficult things can at other times come our way precisely because we're being faithful.
Which takes us to the gospel text for today, which follows immediately last week's gospel text in which Peter, who at this point was still actually going by uh, the name on his birth certificate, Simon, had his very greatest go-to-the-front-of-the-class moment to date when, asked by Jesus who by now they were thinking he was, Simon, without even raising his hand to, to wait to be called on, I can't think of a time when Simon wait, raised his hand and waited to be called on, blurted out, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, to which Jesus responded, you, Simon, are exactly right. And so from now on, I'm giving you a new name, Simon, Peter, which means rock. For faith like your faith that you just confessed and proclaimed, that's the rock upon I, would, I will be building my church. At which point, Matthew now continues in today's text, Jesus then told his disciples a truth that he had never yet told them before. This is the first time, that being that he needed to go to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of power and then be brutally killed by the powerful. And then, well, who can imagine this power? Be raised. Peter, then, the rock, then, again, without raising his hand and asking to be called on, rebuked Jesus, scolded Jesus, chastisingly corrected Jesus for the foolishness of his thinking. God forbid, he said, that is not going to happen. Jesus, you're the Son of God. For God's sake, act like it. There's a connection here. Jeremiah had said to God about Jeremiah's own suffering and threats of death. Peter now says it to God's son about his just now unveiled plan to suffer unto death. The connection common to both objections being that in this world's never-ended pandemic of sin, faith and faithfulness should, for crying out loud, shield people from suffering and death, not lead them into suffering and death. Responding to that line of thinking in the first reading, Jeremiah the prophet said to Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord, repent, which means turn around. Responding to that line of thinking in our gospel reading, Jesus said to the rock upon whom he had just said he would build his church, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. Which is to say you're standing between me and my direction." It's interesting that Satan, who people understand in different ways, and frankly, um, the Bible seems to understand it in a variety of ways, but the common thread to almost all of them is that Satan's voice, however it's heard, is the voice of precisely not God. It's interesting that Satan, however you understand them, did not come into the scene earlier. In last week's text, in a somehow an attempt to prevent Peter from coming to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The reason, of course, is because according to Scripture, Satan, however you understand them, and, and all of their minions too, they all knew exactly who Jesus was. So Satan didn't apparently try to steer Peter away from the faith God had given him, that Jesus was the Son of the living God. God and the Savior of the world, Satan rather got involved via Peter in trying to steer Jesus away from his just released conviction that being the Son of God 
and the Savior of the world would be the death of him. Satan, in other words, apparently doesn't mind anybody saying, praise Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Satan just wants that confession of faith to mean a belief in glory upon glory, right here and now, for the good and the glory of me, including right here in my lifetime. What Satan, on the other hand, apparently doesn't want, because this is where Jesus names Satan's place in the story. What Satan, however you understand them or hear their voice, doesn't want is Jesus or those who call him Lord to think that saving and believing and following would ever need to mean sacrificing and suffering and even if need be, dying for the good, for the salvation in this lifetime and the next of others. It's not the first time, of course, that Satan had tried to turn Jesus from the path he had committed himself to realizing he needed to walk. The first time was at the beginning of the story, right after his baptism. Remember this? In the wilderness for 40 days when Satan comes in and says to him, okay, so you're the son of God. He knows this, see? You're the son of God and you want to usher in the kingdom of God. Well, guess what? You are in luck, Jesus. Because I happen to know I wrote the book on kings and kingdoms. And I also know you, Jesus, and that you think you're going to get it all done by going all love on the world. It's not how it works, Jesus. It's not how it works in the real places with real people. Let me give you a few pointers. And I'll take you to the top of the world where all who see you will bow in trembling fear of you. Remember what Jesus said then? Be gone. Satan, almost the same sounding, except actually not the same at all as what Jesus says to Peter the rock in this story. Remember what he just said? Get behind me, Satan. Can you hear the difference? Be gone means pretty much what it sounds like. Go away from me. Get behind me, on the other hand, this is very clear in the Greek, means follow me. Peter, you see, indeed was and would be the rock upon whose faith and later the faith of others just like his would be that upon which Christ would build his church. But in this scene, you see, Peter the rock, not rock, but rather stumbling block, had stepped in front of Jesus to block his path. Matthew 4 to Satan, go away from me. For I've got a path to walk, and you are not the one coming with me. You and your ways are the ones I've come to overcome. Matthew 16, to Satan, the voice of not God, in Peter, go behind me. Follow me on the path I've come to walk. And learn what it means to have by giving, to win by losing. To hold fast by letting go. To overcome by coming in love. To heal by forgiving. To be faithful even when faithfulness doesn't lead you from suffering, but rather walks with you into suffering. And to live by, in one way or another, dying to live again. Or, to quote Paul 
in today's reading from Romans. Getting behind Jesus, following Jesus. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good.